Calvinism has a problem, and it's not the doctrines. It's us. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. Uh, I am, as always, your host and the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts, Noel Jesse Hakenen. And for those of you who are paying attention, you'll notice that I missed uh, the last episode. These drop every other Wednesday, and I didn't do one last time because I was in Brazil with a bunch of church planters in the network that we are part of, Acts 29 and spending a week with them. And so I didn't get a chance to drop an episode, but it is going to be worth the wait on this one. And I just want to give you a little bit of a setup here. At RIV, the church where I serve as one of the pastors, we have been working through our mission and core values during the weekend services. And last weekend, we talked about this new core value that we really want to be true of our church. And that is that we are biblically holistic and humble that we not only want to apply the whole scripture to our whole selves, but we want to have a humble posture toward God, a humble posture toward the original writers of scripture, and a humble posture toward other Christians who just might disagree with us about some stuff. And so this is a huge value for us and is something that we have been thinking through a lot about. How do we have strong convictions and yet have a humble posture? And honestly, my spiritual formation was men and women who lived that out. There were people who just loved the Bible, but they had this posture of humility. And that's what I would love for our church to be known for. And that's what I think really Christians should be known for. And, and that's why it's like perfectly timed to have this conversation with my guest today, who is Jeff Metters. This is a guy who is biblically holistic and biblically humble. And here's the name of his book. It's Humble Calvinism. And if I know the five points, but have not love, which is almost like the best subtitle of all time. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce to the Recovering Hypocrite podcast, Jeff Metters. Oh, thank you, Noel. It's great to be here with you, man. And I I do not have humility nailed at all. So I just got to say that out at the front. I can't come on here and go, oh, thank you, Noel. I am a professional, humble master. Uh, yeah, well, I'll teach you. Here's, <laughs> here's what I can say. To you. And, and right, if you ever say that you have got humility mastered, then you don't. Yeah. But I will say, in the number of times that you and I have had a chance to sit down and, and talk about church planting or the word, you have a humble posture ter- toward those things. And I, I do love that about you. So you, you're not allowed to respond to that because otherwise it'd be prideful. But I always like to start my podcasts with three publicly available pieces of biographical information and then let you give us three pieces of information people may not know. So here's the three publicly available pieces of information about you. The first is that you are the Director of Assessments for Acts 29 which is a new role that you just stepped into. Yep. And we're both part of that network, but I don't want to talk about X29 because that's not what we're talking about. The second is that you are the host of the X29 podcast. Yeah, two out again, of three. Yep. Two X29. out of three. Still can't talk about X29. <laughs> and the third is, by the way, do you know that if you Google your name, the whole first page is a world famous rodeo announcer? I absolutely do know that. And I live in Houston, Texas, where I think the biggest rodeo in the United States happens here in Houston, the Houston Rodeo. And so I would get emails, Twitter messages, all kinds of stuff about the rodeo. People, the, the church that I was at for 10 years, there were guys in there that did roping and horse stuff and all, whatever. I'm not a big rodeo person. They would send me screenshots of when Jeff Metters, the ESPN Hall of Fame rodeo announcer, was on TV. And so, yeah, all the time. That's the reason why my books and all that stuff is J.A. You Google that, it's a lot different. 
Well, that's, that's actually the exact reason I use my middle name on everything is not that I have the most common name out there. I'm literally the only Noel Haken in, in the world, Yeah. but no one can spell my last name and they <laughs> no. can't Google me. No one can remember how to, so I use Noel Jesse just to give people a, just a shot at that's maybe funny. finding me. Yeah, that's perfect. All right. So hit us with three little known details about your life. Three little known. So the first one that came to mind is that I'm actually half Mexican. And I think my parents did on my birth certificate that they checked me as like maybe full Mexican, maybe, or at least like a half. I, I don't know, but I, I'm a minority. I'm the whitest, you know, Mexican you would ever meet. My mother <laughs> is from Mexico City, grew up there. She's fluent in Spanish, all, all that stuff. My grandparents are from Mexico. Grew so are up, you fluent in Spanish as well? No, not at all. I, I can understand a lot of it, but they, they talk so fast. Just, just like native people who, you know, English isn't their native language. I'm sure we talk so fast to them. But man, yeah, my grandparents would speak so fast. I, I couldn't understand anything they, they were saying. But we grew up salsa dancing, having lots of fun on Friday nights with family. Big, you know, we'd have our annual Christmas on Christmas Eve, kind of a Hispanic tradition. We'd stay up till midnight and open presents then. The second one would be, you wouldn't know it by looking at me head on. But if, we, if you saw me from the side, I have a massive head. My, I mean, I'm like a bobblehead walking around to where even like a seven and three quarters hat, it'll still leave a red line on my forehead. I mean, it's tight, really tight and such a large noggin that when I went to the dentist recently and they did like the standing x-ray machine that goes around your head, <laughs> the machine hit me on the back of the head and we had to, they had to reset the machine, recalibrate it. I mean, I have a huge head and so I just had to embrace it. It just is what it is. Nothing I can do about it. Just well, that's where you hold all that theology. That's it. Right? That's it. It's all there. Lot thick skull. A third one would be listeners can't see this, but I have guitars and stuff hanging hanging on my wall. And so I used to do music, all the kinds of stuff. And one day we were at Disney World, my wife and I and our, our two kids, and they used to have this American Idol experience to where you would go and audition, and they would do a show that night in front of like 400, 500 people. The top wow. three, they had the top three from that day. And they had the fake Simon Cowell and the Paula and the Randy and all that. And that you, it was crazy. So I went and auditioned and I got a call back at Disney World. And then I was one of the final three to perform that night in front of 500 people. Holy uh, smokes. It was nuts with a, like a light pack on. I went in hair and makeup and all, they did a walkthrough and I sang in front of all these people and the judges and I, I did not win at all. But if you would have won, you could have gotten a gold ticket to cut the line at the real American Idol and get right in front of the three judges and all that stuff. So, so that's a wild thing about me. What did you say? What did you sing? You know, they had a list of approved songs for the, for the like final show that day. I think I auditioned with Frank Sinatra. Well, that's gutsy. Yeah. I, th I think, I think that's what it was. So yeah. So I was uh, on, on American Idol at Disney World. Uh, there. That is amazing. Yeah. The closest thing I've ever had to being on a leaderboard like that is when I sat in the top 10 at a go-kart track for an oh. entire day. Hey, so I'd rather have that. It. Yeah. I'd rather have so, that. <laughs> so, so I want to dive into the topic at hand because the, the, the title of your book is, is humble Calvinism. And I think generously there would be a lot of people who would call those two words an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I live in Michigan, and to be honest, on, on the west side of the state is the buckle of the Reformed Bible Belt up here. And I often tell church planters who are 
Calvinist, if you plant a church in West Michigan, don't wave that flag mm. because everyone out here thinks if you're a, a Calvinist that you don't love people and that you're arrogant. That's what so, and, and rightly or wrongly, that is the reputation. It, it, is, is that why you wrote this is because that's, is that beyond Michigan or is that just a Michigan thing? <laughs> no, it's just a Michigan thing. I wrote this book for you guys up there to help y'all out. No, I mean, this is a sickness that goes around with, you know, not just Calvinistic soteriology and, and Reformed soteriology and the five points of Calvinism. Calvinism is much broader than the five points, but at a minimum, you know, we, we talk about the five points. It's, it's much, every theological system has arrogance and has opportunities of arrogance, I guess would be a better way to say it, and misunderstandings and misconnections of the doctrine to the heart, but it does seem to be in a concentrated overload with with tulip with the five points that especially when people learn them they get into like the classical cage stage that we've heard and we talk about that more but you know it came from a couple different areas one my own personal story of kind of hearing the five points being taught calvinism in high school and getting really excited about them in, in a good way of like man i love God's grace. I love his sovereignty. I love his mercy. I love what he's showing me. I, I was genuinely loving the Lord and excited uh, about what I was learning about him. But that also came with, how come other people don't think this way? How come others aren't? How come the other? And so getting really aggressive. So that excitement and that seal kind of going, going over into aggression, which is not, not great, which is not good. So, so there was that piece of the story, my, my own story. And then you know, being a pastor for so many years and seeing other people, how they handled these doctrines, not graciously, not carefully, handled them in a very kind of bludgeony, curmudgeonly type way. And then, you know, being a part of Acts 29 for so many years, I mean, Reformed soteriology is one of our distinctives. We care a lot about God's sovereignty. And then just hearing different stories, seeing different ways, Acts 29 guys, we would talk about the sovereignty of, of God. I just realized like, man, we, we need to think about these things in a different way. And so I pulled off every book I had on my shelf that talked about Tulip, that talked about Reformed soteriology, and to see if there was a theme of humility in it. And often what I found was either one chapter at the end or what paragraph on how this should cause us to truly love one another and to be gracious and humble. And I thought, well, that's not enough. That's not working. That, that one paragraph, that, that last chapter, that's not working. We need more. We need it from the get-go. We need that to really reframe how we interact with all these things. Because if we're not, if we're not growing in, in an ounce of humility and a step towards the right direction, towards one another, towards unbelievers, and, and especially towards the Lord, we just, we haven't understood them correctly or haven't understood them fully yet. I always tell people that a29 for a long time stood for arrogant 29 year old <laughs> right and that really was what we were known for and it's been encouraging to me to see really a thread of humility pulled through this network but mm. do you think that there is something intrinsically about reformed theology that creates these opportunities of arrogance that you talk about because i don't think it's uniquely a calvinist problem right but i think it is overwhelmingly a Calvinist problem Yeah, with other believers that I interact with. Yeah. One of the things I say in the book is that Calvinism has a problem and it's not the doctrines, it's us. And part of it is because we're sinners too. We are, our total depravity, though we're not 
you know, now in Christ, we're not total sinners. We are saints and sinners. We are already not yet ourselves, you know, declared righteous and we are growing in righteousness, but we're declared righteous. We're declared not guilty, but yet we still sin. So we, we are in this, this odd stage of our discipleship with Christ still. And I think it just comes with, with Reformed theology. When, it, when we get it, when we see this, the bigness of God, the hugeness of God, and it feels so maybe countercultural, so backwards from what we heard growing up, that we're excited to talk about it. And we, we feel like, man, this is who God is. We're discovering the truth of who God is, his character, his love, his actions in the world. And we want to tell other people about it. And then other people don't believe it. And we just go, well, how? this is what the Bible says. How could you not? And, and so we, we have just really ingested it into such a high dosage. And I think some of it is, we don't have the maturity yet at some of, some of the ages. Like I know the age that I learned this stuff, I didn't have any kind of spiritual maturity to really go and tell other people about it or to teach. And so that's why the scriptures talk about so much about, be careful if you're going to be a teacher, you'll be held to a higher standard. Well, I think a lot of people learn Calvinism in college or whatever, and then they immediately assume the mantle of teacher. I'm going to teach lots of people all this stuff and be like, hey, no, no one's invited you to that. You know, no one's invited you to be their rabbi, to be their seminary professor or whatever. So it's like, we've got to be careful with how we handle these things and make sure that we've learned them fully ourselves. And, and when I say learn them fully ourselves, not just to be able to articulate the five points and to talk about the, the history and tradition of them, but to really have that connect to everyday life, how they connect to loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. That's when we've understood these things. You know, I think that there's something what you just said about age and maturity in, in you know, in 1 Timothy 5, 22, where Paul says, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. And other translations say, don't be too hasty in laying out of yeah. hands, right? And the idea of, of allowing a theology like the five points of Calvinism, which by the way, I'm not a five pointer, so we could have a nice argument about that one. That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> but to, to let those marinate in life experience and gentleness and humility over time, it is natural as a young person who gets passionate to say, why doesn't anyone else believe, yeah. you know, what I believe and what I'm seeing here in scripture. And I, I do think that's part of why Paul warns against recognizing someone when they're too young. Yeah. yeah and I think in first Timothy four, you know, I'm drawn there so often, you know, I'm, I'm not young, not in my twenties, not in my forties, I'm in the middle, but I feel like age is always relative. Depends on who you talk to. You're young compared to who you're talking to, right? And, and Paul tells Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youthfulness. And so sometimes guys, especially young guys, we can read that passage and go, yeah, that's right. You can't look down Don't on you me. dare. Don't, Don't you, you dare. dare. But if you keep reading, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youthfulness, but set an example in your speech, faith, conduct, love, and purity. And so he's saying, don't let anybody look down on you because you have the conduct that's like this. You have the speech, the faith, and the purity therefore they they're not even able to look down on you don't give them a reason to look down on you because you're young because that would be the typical thing to go ah oh, it's a young guy that's yeah. just a young guy what i've experienced in calvinism is a lot of people talk about oh i'm so excited about the doctrines of grace mm -hmm. and they do it in such an ungracious manner without even catching the irony yeah like like, why is that so hard for us to live out 
in our handling of the word and people we disagree with. Well, this might sound harsh, but I think the reason it happens, because I'll speak from my own experience, I think because I was more excited about doctrine than I was excited about Jesus, right? I mean, way more passionate about prepositional truths than a person that was crucified for my sins and risen from the dead and now reigns for me, who is himself the God of all grace. And so it's like when we get super passionate about doctrine and about truth and correctness and rightness, which matters, I, we, we should be concerned with truth and doctrine. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth. I mean, so truth matters, but the point of all these things is Christ. And so we can have a version of Calvinism that Jesus is kind of like riding in the sidecar of it. He's in the passenger seat. It's nice that he's there, but we need these prepositional truths to be taught. When that's just so wrong. I mean, the most important five-letter word in Calvinism isn't tulip, it's Jesus. Like, we can lose sight of Jesus and talk about total depravity, but if we talk about total depravity without ever bringing it to the hope and the love and the power and grace of Jesus, then who cares? Yeah. You know, okay. So, so we've, you've mentioned tulip a couple of times. So some of the people listening are like, I don't, we're in Michigan. We have a lot of actual tulips. Yeah. And so walk through really briefly the five points of Calvinism. Tell me what they are and how this whole idea of humility should be postured. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do this. So this really is the core, the core of the book. So tulip is the acronym that is often used for the five points of Calvinism. Now, Calvin did, himself did not come up with these. They were written by men who spoke English in the early 1900s. One, we know that because Calvin didn't speak English, spoke French. You know, acronyms were not all the rage that they were in the 16th century during the Reformation that they are in evangelical Christianity. Yeah, all States. you have to do is look at the title of books yeah from that time period <laughs> right. which are longer than some of our books absolutely yeah. yeah calvin's institutes of the christian religion so these five points don't even encapsulate all of calvinism calvin is much broader there's all kinds of issues with politics and governance and creation making all, all kinds of other things but we're talking about soteriology so the first point these were all written actually in response to the followers of the, the arminians the arminians were teaching some stuff that they that other Christians felt was out of bounds from what we've already agreed to in the Church of Holland. And so they responded back with five points going, oh, here's what we teach. One, that men are, I'll just use all the English phrases that are popular, T, totally depraved. And this means that we are 100% sinful to our core. So let's just talk about the individual person. Outside of Christ, I'm not just a good person that needs a nudge. I'm not a, you know, okay person that, you know, I'll just do some good and that's, I'll get on God's good side. No, we are wicked. We are sinful. We are sinners. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. Our mouths are full of venom. And so we, we are, we're sinners in need of saving. And total depravity also in the sense that every person total. So it's not just, you know, okay, well, are some people exempt? Some are better. No, this is also why sins of like, white supremacy and racism and all are, are so wicked because we are all totally depraved. There is no, no race, no ethnicity has any advantage over, over the other in terms of righteousness. This is not there. Secondly, unconditional election is that God has chosen, Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, those who would be saved. He chose us in Christ. And so if we're all sinful and we're all wicked and none of us has any advantage, then how do we come into the kingdom of God? How do we get there? 
Oh, because of God's God's foreknowledge, God's choosing, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Romans 9. There's a lot, a lot there. That's a very controversial point in the greater world between Calvinists, between people who don't take the name Calvinism. So that that's a lot of conversation happening around that. And, and there should be a lot of conversation uh, around that. This L in TULIP is limited atonement, which I think is the worst way to describe it. I, I say this in the book. I think a better term is definite atonement or particular redemption, but it really, you know, compromises the acronym. So, well, unless you're like a baseball player and it's to dip or not to dip. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. The, yeah. For baseball little players hair, all about it. Put that, yeah, yeah. Put that, uh, t- chewing tobacco in there. So limited atonement is saying, okay, who did Jesus die for? So how, how are we saved? And it's saying that Jesus death accomplished salvation for his sheep that it is not a possibility for you to be saved, but it was a purchasing of your salvation. That Jesus' death on the cross did not make just salvation possible, but that he purchased it, he finalized it, he signed on it, it's done. And you are paid for, the sheep, his bride, his people have been redeemed, and it will be actualized uh, later on in, in life, personalized in their faith with him. And then the I, is irresistible grace. So uh, John Piper, when he teaches us a lot, I think he actually does the I because he's like, how do we, how does this even happen, right? Where if we're totally depraved and we have no interest in God, how does this happen? Well, the I is the answer to that, is that God shows us through the preaching of the gospel, through the word of God, through evangelism, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he is desirable, that he is good, he's gracious, he's loving, he's kind, and, and we want him. And so when, when he shows himself, as Second says, Second uh, Corinthians three says, when we behold with unveiled face, when the veils are removed, and we behold the glory of the Lord, we taste and see that the Lord is good. It's because He invited us to His banqueting table, and His banner over us is love, as Song mm. Solomon says. Yeah. And so then we see that God is good. He's not something to um, run from. He, he's not someone to run from. He's not someone to a cower away from. You know, in the clefts of the rocks, He's someone to go to in love. And so we desire him and it's his grace that we see that draws us in. Last one, P is the perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. Could be categorized, uh, labeled those two different ways. It just, the most common way that people say is once saved, always saved, um, or eternal security. That once you have been genuinely born again and you've been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit and you're united to Christ, your salvation cannot be lost. Jesus says you are in my hand and in the Father's hand. There's nothing and no one that can, that can take you out of it. Romans 8.1 says, there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no sin that you could commit that would make God say, oh, no, 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 sorry, you're out. You are in him forever, justified, declared not guilty, and loved forever. Your salvation will not be taken away. You cannot be ununited from Christ. You're alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's been given to you as a down payment for your inheritance to come, as Ephesians 1 says. And so that that's a broad, sweeping overview of the five points. Now, how do these matter for our daily lives? One, total depravity. I'll just give you quick examples. I give way more in the book. But for total depravity, if we know our sinfulness and we know, man, I, I've struggled with sin deeply and I know what it's like to not be a Christian and to have so many struggles, we should have total sympathy for one another. Mm. That when we see a Christian who is struggling, we don't put our nose up at them. We go, man, I know. I know. Yeah. I know what it's like. I know. When we're evangelizing, we see unbelievers, we shouldn't be shocked that they act the way that they act. We should go, yeah, I know. As Paul says in Titus 3, for, I, for we too were once foolish, 
we were betraying one another, hating one another, envying one another. But when the goodness and love and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he washed us in the power of renewal of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, sprinkled clean. So, I mean, total depravity creates a total sympathy in us for sinners that we want to show them the power and love of Christ. Um, unconditional election, how should that create humility and foster change among us? Well, I, I, one of the things that I love is that it's an unconditional love that we didn't have to display the worthiness of our salvation uh, to God to, to really get it, to really prove to him we're worth it. And I think in our relationships in the local church, sometimes we look at people and go, well, I, they need to prove to me that they're worth my time or worth my affection or whatever. Well, that's conditional love. And if we're to love one another as God in Christ loves us, he's mm-hmm. given us the pattern for how do we love each other unconditionally unconditionally. So that brings up other issues. Well, okay, we walk in forgiveness. We, it, we, we, all that, yes, our love is not perfect for one another, but we don't have to tell people you got to prove it. We hold people at an arm's distance. We have love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, like a family. Now, I think we know that theologically, but we got to keep growing experientially. What does it really mean to love, to love as family? L, limited atonement, particular redemption, saying that Jesus' death was sufficient for all, but designed for his sheep, I think one connection for us here is very, very practical, is that the scriptures teach that there is a book of life, the Lamb's book of life, that was written written inside of this, all the names of those who would be saved by Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, there was a name written with your name in it, Noel, with my name in it. And since God cares so much about our personal names, we should do our best to learn each other's names as well. So in the local church, not just, hey, brother, hey, man, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and it's harder with a bigger church. It's harder as a pastor. It's hard. But to do the best we can, that to God dignified your name before the foundation of the earth with your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We can strive to grow in dignifying each other and saying, your name, it matters. Hey, Noel. Hey, Bill. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Because it's family. God cares about our names. They're in, written on his hand, as Isaiah says. And so let's, let's dignify each other's names as well. Irresistible grace. I think we should communicate really how powerful, and how exciting, and how thrilling it is to be on mission with Jesus. That we're released from trying to make it all happen. Our churches don't grow and churches aren't planted because we're geniuses. Things don't happen spiritually in our lives because we have some master plan. It happens because it is God who gives the growth. It's God who works. And so we can sleep peacefully at night. We evangelize boldly. We go on mission faithfully because it is God who's going to do the work. And then in perseverance of the saints, I I think one of the key connections to our spiritual formation would be noticing two things about the phrase, perseverance of the saints. That it's perseverance as a saint, as a holy one, that our holiness matters. It's not just, hey, I believe this stuff good. I can do whatever I want now. No, I, you, you can't do whatever you want now, if that's how you want to use that phrase. You should do whatever you want now as a saint, as your desire should have changed. And so, yeah, do what you want in following Christ and honoring him, walking with him as someone who's been called a holy one, set apart for the living God. Secondly, it's perseverance of the saints, plural. So we persevere with the saints in the local church, in community with one another. The Christian discipleship is personal, but it's not solo. It's not individual. It is personal and in that it is your growth. It's, it's your walk with Christ, but it happens in, in the community. It happens with the saints. And so any misunderstanding apart from that 
we'll, we'll kind of get off the rails. One of the main analogies I use in the book, and you referenced kind of this earlier when you told guys who go plant in West Michigan, don't, don't wave the flag of Calvinism. Well, one of the things I like to say is that Calvinism should be like rebar, you know, those metal tubes that go in concrete and reinforcing things, reinforcing bars, rebar, is that when you see rebar, that tells us two things. One, this thing is broken and needs to be repaired. Or two, this project's not finished yet. So if the Calvinism is always showing, it's always out there, that's the flag that's always flying. I'd say, brother, you've, you've, put, the, you've put the wrong thing out in front. You're not finished yet with this stuff. It should be back there supporting, encouraging, giving you strength for how to think about certain things, but it should not be on the forefront because Jesus should be on the forefront. Because who is the one who was not totally depraved, but took on our depravity so that we could become totally righteous? Who is the one that we are chosen? He is the chosen Messiah. He is the, the Christ, the son of the living God, and we are chosen in him for salvation. The limited atonement is clearly all about Jesus. It's not just about, okay, who did Jesus die for or not? That's a terrible way to frame it. It should be, look what Jesus' death has done for us. Look what Jesus has done for those who believe in him. And then irresistible grace is because of the beauty of the Lord. As, as David says in Psalm 27, one thing I ask, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and dwell in his tabernacle. And then perseverance. Jesus says, you'll be with me forever. I go and prepare a place for you and I will dwell with you forever. In my father's house, there are many rooms and where I'm going, I will bring you to myself. Like Jesus says, you will be mine. And he's coming back to get his bride. So like the more that we can frame the five points to be about, look at the glory of Jesus. Look at the goodness of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus for you. And that these are vehicles to express our love for Jesus, to express it back to him. Well, as you were talking, I just, I kept thinking about, you know, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul's description of the last days and some of the words that he uses is that people will be lovers of self, that they'll mm. be boastful, that they'll be proud, that they'll be demeaning, that they'll be unloving, that they'll be irreconcilable, <laughs> without self-control, without love for what is good, conceited, all those things. And just a few verses before that, Paul says, flee youthful passions, which I actually think what he's saying here is flee the youthful tendency to dial everything up to 11, hmm. because he's in the middle of talking about how a, a, a pastor should be. And I think that's what he's talking about. I don't think he's saying, you know, just run away from sexual sin and immorality. He, he may be broadly, but I think he's talking about the youthful passion because when he flips, he says, he goes, but reject foolish, ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. And it's yeah. almost like he's saying, your youthful tendency, young pastor, he's saying to Timothy, is going to be to dial everything up to 11. But in doing so, you're going to be all those things that people are going to be in the end times. That's right. The boastful, Man. the proud, the conceited, the arrogant. And so that we need to dial down those youthful passions. And as men and women of God, just be humble, be patient, be gentle, love yeah. like Jesus. And man, to have that be what we are known for in theological circles. Yeah, because I, I think it's to get back to, you know, Dane Orland's masterful book where he channeled the Puritans and, and so, much, so much wonderful, you know, writers before us. The more that we're learning from Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart. So he says, right, come and learn from me. So if we're just learning theology, but we're not learning Jesus, we're actually betraying Jesus. If we're not becoming like Jesus, 
but we're becoming more like, I don't know what we're becoming more like. Not, not him, not more gentle, not more gracious, not more lowly. Well, I mean, what we're doing is we're doing exactly what Paul says in in 2 Timothy 3. We're holding to a form of godliness, but denying Mm -hmm. its power. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that that's something we want to just, we want to be seen as more godly than we want to be. Right. We want to be seen as right more than we want to be seen as humble and and gentle. And I think sometimes, especially in our Calvinist circles, we need to be okay with not winning every argument. Right. And somebody can actually be wrong on Twitter and you don't have to point it out. <laughs> yeah, it'd be amazing. You can just let that go and let them be wrong on Twitter and keep scrolling. Yeah. And and I think that it, that would be what I would love to see us be known for. Yeah, I think one of the things that helped me, you know, as I was being convicted about you know, this book and thinking through these things, but there were a couple of people I wanted to reach out to and say, you know, years and years ago when we would have these conversations about Calvinism, like I was, I was not Christ-like to you in this, so please forgive me and and they forgave and they asked for forgiveness too. We had a great, you know, you know, kind of a restoration of that part of the relationship and, and it was good. So I think more of that needs to happen of just coming up and saying, man, I, I blew it back there. Will you please forgive me? I, I wish I would have had the maturity to to handle that better. Because we, and it still happens. We, we still think maturity equals knowledge. That's just not true. Lucifer has tons of knowledge, but he doesn't have spiritual maturity. You know, spiritual maturity is Christ likeness. What, what you just referenced earlier, knowledge that doesn't accord with godliness. Like that's where we gotta go. One one of the things that I just think is so so important for uh, for us to realize is that we are all ongoing project. We are still growing into Christ likeness, and so there will be people that man they hear some of this stuff and they're gonna receive it right away. They're gonna be like, man, this is this is wonderful. No no fighting no disagreements. And there'll be other people that hear it and go, well, I, I don't know about this. I don't know. What about that? That is not a indication of their, that they don't take the word of God seriously. That's not an indication that they, you know, want to give God lesser glory. It's an indication of wrestling. Yeah. It's an indication of, I want to think more about this biblically, which we should cheer. And, mm-hmm. and so... I never, when I would teach these things, I, I teach them at churches and whatever, I'd tell them, I don't want you to believe in limited atonement or to affirm limited atonement because it's the next logical progression. That That is not what we're at. Th- this is not about logical progressions of affirmation. I want you to be convinced if you see it in the scriptures. If yes. you don't see it in the scriptures, don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Anything. We're held captive to the word of God. And, and we're so... Man, if you don't see it in the Bible, then don't, don't, if you read Humble Calvinism, you're like, yeah, I didn't buy his scriptural arguments for this point or that. Okay, I'm good. If, if you think you've got a, another case or you found something in the Bible that trumps that, man, power to you. Get in the word and, and get to know this is not a gospel issue. This is not the Apostles' Creed. This is not Nicene Orthodoxy, things about Christ's death and resurrection and the Trinity. Spurgeon tells the story about George Whitfield being asked. What do we see John Wesley in heaven? And if you don't know these characters, George Whitfield was a famous revival preacher in the 18th century, and he was a Calvinist. John Wesley, uh, founder of the Methodist movement, not a Calvinist, he was an Arminian, and they were friends. 
And they had some falling outs at times, but they were by and large, the, I think the, the line over their story would be they were, they were friends. And so somebody asked Whitfield, the Calvinist, would we see Wesley, the Arminian, in heaven? And George said, no, I don't believe we'll see John Wesley in heaven. And pauses, and everybody's like, oh, goodness, that's just heavy. And he said, the reason why I don't think I'll see John Wesley in heaven is because he will be so close to the throne, and I'll be so far in the back that I don't think I'll be able to see him. Like that kind of posture of, hey, look, we disagree about some stuff, but my goodness, I know he loves the Lord. I know he cares about the Lord, and we disagree, but I'm thankful that I can count him as a brother in Christ. We, we need a lot more of that, no matter the doctrinal position we're talking about. I'm going to say, yeah, we disagree, but I'm, I'm glad he's my brother. I'm glad she's my sister. And I think that's about the perfect word to wrap up with today. So, Jeff, thank you so much uh, for being on. For those of you who missed this at the beginning or skipped over it, the, the book is Humble Calvinism. And regardless of whether you are a Calvinist or not, you should read this book because it is a a beautiful picture of how our doctrine and theology should drive us toward humility versus driving us toward pride. And so thank you so much for being on, Jeff. Appreciate you a ton. Oh, thanks, Noel. It's good to be here, man. Always always great chatting with you in person or, or here online. So I, I'm really glad to, to be here with you.